A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach for the Recount and ACAST, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. Ho, 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 I'm LZ Granderson. He is the Grinch known as Will Leach. I love Christmas and all holidays, for crying out loud. My heart is not two sizes too small. First off, of course, we're going to talk about Omicron, the surging pandemic, and whether or not asymptomatic athletes with COVID might actually need to compete just to keep sports leaks going over the next couple of months, and whether or not that's okay. Maybe this is how Colin Kaepernick gets back in the league. Then we'll dig into the Deion Sanders bombshell, and if it means that historically black colleges and universities can become, once again, football powerhouses. As long as it upsets Dabo Sweeney, basically, I feel like no matter what, it's a good thing. And later, Hall of Fame quarterback Kurt Warner. He will stop by to discuss his new film, American Underdog, The Burden of Being a Hero, and how he would have handled being a devout Christian if he'd played in the era of social media and Donald Trump. And we've also got a great This Week in Sports History segment featuring Bo Jackson, where we answer the big question, can anyone star in two major sports again like both he and Dion did? I can't walk five feet without falling over, LZ. I think my two sports career is not going to happen. I don't think your one sport career happened. And we'll finish off our show with our games of the week and Will's and LZ's blunders of the week. But first, LZ, I want to know one thing. What's your sports mood right now? I'm in a very good place. You want to know why? Maybe. Because my beloved Detroit Lions oh, beat your Arizona I knew you were say this. I knew you were going to say this. And wiped them out. It was awful. It was that, hilarious. Oh, my gosh. The Rams and the Lions two straight weeks have humiliated like the one good team I root for. I resisted the temptation to text you the entire I know. time. I was waiting for it. I actually went over to the, your text and was waiting for the little dots to show up because I, I knew they were coming. I knew something was coming from you. I was like, I'm just going to wait until this motherfucker asks me what my sports mood is uh, and when he, oh, when he does, I'm going to be like, Detroit Lions, man. You got smacked. Full, full <laughs> wipe. The Lions have been clearly getting better. Even when they were losing all those games, they didn't seem like a Jaguars-esque disaster. Their team was better than their result. Yes, but certainly the Cardinals should not be that bad. In the span of a week now, we've gone from the Cardinals having the number one overall seed to now being one game ahead of the Rams and barely hanging on to potentially playing a road game in Los Angeles in the first round of the playoffs, <laughs> if they even make it that far. And listen, if they even make it that far. Listen, you live in Arizona. I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan. When the NFL ran their big anniversary package, you didn't see a bunch of Arizona Cardinal highlights on there. Oh, look, it's Dan Deardorff blocking. It's not like a particularly exciting franchise. I'm aware no. of that. This is it. Like We've got Kyler Murray, this exciting player. We've got this great start to the season. This is it. This is our time. And once again, for the third consecutive year, they're falling on their face down the stretch. And it is very frustrating. There's a slow consensus perhaps building that maybe while Cliff Kingsbury was helpful in the early days, it might be time to maybe put a grown-up in that job a wow. little bit. I, th I think so. I think I so. Think, I don't think... Like, when you really look at this season in particular, right, things started to go downhill once J.J. Watt got hurt. 
Yeah. There's yeah. a direct correlation between your defense. And now Hopkins hurt. Right. Right. And then right, Kyler right, got right. hurt. You can't fault Cliff because his stars got injured and missed games. I know, but this is now the third straight year. Like, we'll see. Maybe they'll turn this around. This is the third straight year where they've been very well positioned and fallen apart down the stretch. In tight moments, he tends to freak out. He makes some very strange play calls. Well, you didn't have any tight moments on against the no, Detroit no, Lions. No, no, yeah. yeah it's just like the whole thing was tight uh, from the beginning. And it's also worth doing that. Like, what? Kingsley's to be here, right? Because he's some offensive genius and it's been the defense that's really carried them. Or Murray just being able to do amazing things, falling down, running, throwing a 50-yard pass downfield. I don't think he's a bad coach. I also argue if you're an actual team that's serious about winning a Super Bowl with the talent that you have, it might be time to have a grown-up in charge. Yeah, but, it's going to be interesting. What's your sports mood? I Actually, I, I have to uh, be sad for my son. He's 10 years old, and he is a diehard Cleveland Browns fan. Now, I have many friends who are Cleveland wait, Browns fans. Hold up. This, this, this is called child abuse. I have heard this specifically <laughs> from Cleveland Browns fans. No, they're exciting. They've got all these young stars. He loved Nick Chubb. That's how he became a what? Browns fan. Because Nick Chubb played for Georgia. The practice all facility right. for Georgia is right across from my kid's school. Nick Chubb sat in his class because Nick Chubb is famously one of the nicest guys in the world. He loved Nick Chubb so much. He promised he would follow Nick Chubb wherever he went. So he went to the Browns. And so you he have to become... teach your son how to break promises. Uh, uh, believe you me, uh, he's going to be a teenager really soon. I don't think he needs to learn that lesson anytime <laughs> soon. But I will say that their loss on Monday night, their postponed Monday loss, that was about as crushing of a loss as you can have. The walk-off field goal when all you needed was one stop at home. The Browns have a talented team. They've had a lot of injuries. They've had a lot of COVID. Obviously, had COVID problems to play on Monday night. But this really felt like the year they were going to break through. It felt like they'd made a lot of good decisions. The Beckham thing didn't work out, but it felt like there was a lot of stuff that was all set up for them and none of it has worked and none of it has come together. And now here they are um, making my son cry. <laughs> so that is my sports mood. Who needs to go more? Baker Mayfield or Cliff Clansbury? Well, I like Mayfield, but you can't invest any more bad years than the number one overall pick without it going to pay off. Like you need a real quarterback there. To me, this is one of the things that the Rams did, right? The Rams finally realized, okay, this guy's not terrible, but he's just not going to get us to where we need to go. Right. And right. it feels like the Browns may have to make that decision pretty soon. They said, Jared Goff, he's only good to beat the Cardinals. That's about it. Oh, jeez. How did I invite myself I to let to, that go full circle? I had to. I, I deserve that. It's my fault. It was I brought him up. It was like uh, a script. <laughs> right now, our producers are like, oh, we should totally written that thing where Will looks like an <laughs> idiot at the end. But nope, I wandered into that myself all by my lonesome. Well, mm. Let's move on to our first big story. Oh, please. Let's talk about something happy. The global pandemic. Pretty just confused and, you know, frustrated, angry. I had to put, uh, you know, my kids in isolation for the time being and put the people in my household um, in isolation for the time being. So it was just a you know, big time inconvenience. So uh, that was the anger part. That was LeBron James expressing his frustration with the NBA's health and safety protocols after testing positive for COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago, a test that turned out to be false, by the way. Unfortunately, the pandemic is surging again, and the coronavirus is wreaking havoc on North American sports leagues. The NHL, even though it only has one unvaccinated player, is stopping play until next week, while more than 15% of the NBA's 450 players and over 100 NFL players are currently sidelined because of COVID. 
While some athletes are urging their leagues to halt play, many believe the health and safety protocols are too strict, especially if they've tested positive but are asymptomatic and still must isolate even though they feel good. And what may be a response to this sentiment, the NFL just decided to eliminate its weekly testing requirements of vaccinated players who don't have COVID symptoms. Well, it <laughs> seems like this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue as Omicron, as you like to say, continues to spread. Is it worth thinking about letting asymptomatic athletes with COVID compete, or is it just a dangerous money grab on the part of team owners and players? Well, first off, it is a money grab. Everything's always a money grab. That's why sports happen. If it wasn't a money grab, we'd all just be watching eight-year-olds play basketballs in the street. Obviously, money's an aspect in this. However, I think that what the NFL and really the NBA have done by saying we are no longer going to test vaccinated asymptomatic athletes is a major change. This is basically what college sports has been doing forever, right? right? There's no overarching people in charge of college sports. So they're just kind of testing when someone is sick, but otherwise they're not. There have been reports of college basketball coaches saying, we haven't tested our guys all year until this. But the NFL has to have protocols. There's a union, there's players, the NBA is the same way. For them to explicitly say that, that we are not testing asymptomatic vaccinated players, is in an age of Omicron, a clear admission there's going to be a COVID-positive player playing in a game. There probably has already been one. There probably was one yesterday. I understand that some people will say, wait, how can they let a player with COVID play during a game? Don't they have to find out? Shouldn't they be testing constantly? They're clearly testing less because when you test, you get cases. And when you get cases, you can't play games. And so that sounds weirdly like Trump, right? Where he's like, why are we testing so much? Keep the people on the boat so they don't make our numbers uh, sound bad. But it is different, right? It's different because vaccines are here and they've shown clear success against severe cases of COVID. What sports are doing in this, not to be a leader or to set the tone, but purely out of calculated self-interest, I would argue is laying the groundwork for, in an age of Omicron, what the rest of the society is going to have to be dealing with over the next few months. Listen, I was in New York City last week. There were a whole bunch of people that were fully vaccinated, that were testing positive for COVID and freaking the fuck out. That's what Omicron has changed. This is people who have done all the right things and have done everything that you're supposed to do still getting COVID. Now, it's not severe COVID. They tend to be fine. So moving forward, what the NFL is saying is if we're going to be able to do the things that we need to do, have games, we need to accept that COVID is a part of our lives and move forward accordingly. If you're not vaccinated, that's different. But if you are vaccinated, they're saying, we're not gonna test you unless you're sick. And I have to say, that feels like where the rest of us need to get to. And I know this makes me sound like Scott Atlas in August of 2020. <laughs> and I do not wanna be that guy. That's the difference between now and then. There are vaccines, magical vaccines, truly incredible, a testament to human ingenuity and what we're capable of doing in a record amount of time. I'm blown away by it even to this day. But the idea that those were supposed to like, I now have a force field around me and COVID will never touch me was always frankly, probably a little bit immature and naive. Our elected officials at that time, it was sort of insinuated that if you get this vaccine, then you don't have to worry about contracting COVID. And it wasn't until there was more data brought in that the language changed from it's not that you won't contract COVID, it's you're less likely to die from COVID. 
But unfortunately, the first message was already the predominant message yeah. that people were exchanging. And so then there was this backlash, which you can understand why, right? It's, it felt as if they were moving the goalposts, when in reality, they weren't moving the goalposts. They were still learning from science. And, and they were commenting in real time. This has been going on for two years, <laughs> depending on where you live, depending on where someone's listening to this. I suspect that what the public messaging is and what people are saying is perhaps very different than what you see people doing in your everyday actual life, for better right. or for worse, or maybe what they should be doing. But that's all been unofficial. It's all been quiet. This is an actual major American institution saying there are going to be people that go to work COVID positive. We, and we're not going to find out about it, but it's going to happen. And that's the way things are going to have to be moving forward. This feels like sports in a totally craven, self-interested way, of course, setting the tone for, I think, the way the rest of us are going to have to live moving forward. So I agree with you in the sense that there is an admission being made by North American sports leagues. And part of the admission is that we're just going to have athletes on the field who likely would have tested positive for COVID, but they're asymptomatic and so we're gonna let them play anyway. But the other part of the admission is we no longer care if unvaccinated people become infected, get sick and die. Because that's the reason why you are supposed <laughs> to keep these people isolated. It's not because necessarily you're worried about their health, but their ability to spread this to other people and possibly infect those who aren't vaccinated and of course end up in the hospital, if not worse. So it's also the mission of, yeah, people are going to die from this and we're not stopping. It's a risk management thing, right? There's also a difference between them, frankly, playing a game on a field and playing a game in an assisted living facility. Like, like, sort of, sort of. I know. And sort I know of, no, because yeah. because my second point too, Will, was that we're so focused in on the athletes, but really it takes a lot of people to put a game on. And you're concerned about assistant coaches who might be of a certain age. You're concerned about the head coach, obviously. You're concerned about the, the equipment staff. You're concerned about the medical staff. To put on a sporting event, there are a lot of people who could be exposed to COVID who aren't athletes. And so the question becomes, is there an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility, if one of these other employees contracts the virus and becomes ill or even worse. What happens in that part of accountability of when course. you're forcing Americans to decide whether or not to go to work or expose themselves to COVID? There is a lot more involved, I think, from a moral conversation, but you're right, right? Like at the end of the day, we're going to have to learn to live with this. And there is a part of me, Will, and I don't know if I'm proud of this or what, but it is what it is. I'm vaccinated. I've been boosted and I'm living my life. Yes. As am I, to be honest. Do I still wear a mask in the buildings that ask me to or requires me to? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Am I wearing the mask as you know, religiously as I did a year ago? No, I'm not. I go into Target. I'm not wearing my mask. I'm fully vaccinated and I've been boosted. And I see what the numbers say in terms of how Omicron is going to affect people who are fully vaccinated and boosted. And I'm comfortable with that. My mom, fully vaccinated and boosted. Mm -hmm. Husband, same thing, son. So I'm just going, well, if you're not fully vaccinated and boosted and you're out there running around maskless, then you're kind of playing Russian roulette. And if you want to play Russian roulette, that's all fine and dandy. 
but I really am not too concerned about you if you get ill. I understand what you're saying. I think you're really onto something about the moral aspect of this, specifically the idea of people that may have no choice but to be near these games. But I also think that it's December. It's almost January. It's going to be March. It's going to be the second anniversary of March 11. Like soon. (laughs) It's going to be like really soon that this has been the central story of American life for two years. People are exhausted. And I do think the switch of the NFL doing this and sports really doing this is something that we've not seen from institutions, whether they're politics or whether they're business. And again, the NFL did not put out a statement saying, we're cool with people with COVID playing. That's not what they said. (laughs) That's not what they said explicitly. Yeah, but that is what the policy is, right? right? And for them to do that feels like one can argue it's a step forward and one can argue it's a step backward, but it's clearly a step. It's a change. And I think it's a change that Omicron has open the door to. I know a bunch of people who thought they were never going to get COVID because they did everything right like you did and like I did. And then when they got it, they're protected and they feel better, but it also has changed their calculus on this and Mm -hmm. changed their idea that I can stay inside and mask up and do everything right and I'm never going to get COVID. And it's something that we accepted because we wanted to accept it, right? Last June, June 2021 was the best. Everybody I knew was vaccinated. No one was going to get COVID. The numbers were so low. It was amazing. There were three straight days where there were no cases in my county. It felt like a victory in that moment where the sailor's kissing the the woman in Times Square. But that didn't happen. And we're never going to have that moment. And so if we're never going to have that moment, what the NFL is doing is something you're going to see other institutions start to do in an age of Omicron. But what is the conversation if someone on the staff gets ill. What happens then? That's the thing that I'm more pressed about. Because again, the athletes are the ones who gets all the cameras and all the stories written up about them. No one's checking in to see what's going on with the massage therapist. You know what I mean? Like everyone else that's involved. I just hope that as the sports world continues to try to figure out how to adjust to this new variant. And I'll keep in mind that the global medical profession (laughs) still is waiting to see what the impact of this variant is. Is this going to be deadlier than the Delta variant? Is this going to be deadlier than the original? Or is it really going to be nothing at all? And I think we're assuming it's nothing at all because we hadn't seen anything to suggest otherwise but just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that it isn't still a possibility. So I think there's still like a lot of moral questions that have to be answered. And I hope that these sports leagues are at least entertaining the idea that, yeah, we want to keep going as much as possible, but we may have to stop, not because of the athletes, but because of everyone else who are critical for us putting games on. I don't think they're going to. <laughs> I agree that putting on games carries more risk of people getting COVID than not carrying on games. I agree. I also agree that not having school, which is almost as important as sports, close. I got tacos above school. (laughs) Not having school dramatically decreases the idea of them getting COVID at school. It, however, does have a whole bunch of other effects. And that's the calculation in an Omicron world that every single business and institution and college and school and you name it, uh, and family really is going to have to figure out. As we've said so many times on the show, sports is different because sports happens. Sports 
happens constantly. It happens all the time. There's constantly games going on. It's why this show is so fun to do because there's so many things that are always going on. Because and Arizona Cardinals are always losing. Oh my goodness. This, I, I thought we go. were past this already. I told you um, I wasn't going to let it go. Because sports is so insistent on happening, it tends to face these questions sooner than other institutions. And that's to come up with the decisions moral or otherwise correct or otherwise earlier than they do. We'll see what happens. Hopefully in two weeks, we'll be like, remember we were so worried about Omicron? Ha, 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 ha. Let's all make out. And that's what we'll all do. If I'm laughing like that, we have other issues. All right, Will, let's move on to our next big topic, which is prime time's impact on your favorite sport, college football. Is it your favorite sport? Um, no, baseball's my favorite sport. All right, Will, let's move on to our next big topic, which is prime time's impact on your second favorite sport, college football. It's college basketball. All right, Will, <laughs> let's move on to your 17th favorite sport, college football. <laughs> A sport you might or may not care about, college football. <laughs> That was the moment when Travis Hunter, the top high school football player in the nation, put on a Jackson State cap and announced that he was going to play for the Tigers. Last week, former NFL superstar Deion Sanders, now the head coach at Jackson State, shocked college football by convincing Hunter to decommit from major power Florida State and join him in Mississippi. Why is this a big deal? Well, Decades ago, when major conferences like the SEC were segregated or not interested in recruiting black players, historically black colleges and universities became an incredible source of talent for the NFL. Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, and Michael Strahan are just a handful of the Hall of Famers who played HBCU football. Today, the SEC is 57% black, and its programs generate tens of millions of dollars more than HBCU schools do. So they have better facilities, more advanced sports medicine, a ton more television exposure, and of course, they do get the best talent. The NFL didn't even draft a single HBCU player in 2021, and only 18 of them are on its current rosters combined. But Dion, with his star power and great business connections, may be changing all of that. Elsie, does this mean that HBCUs are finally on the rise again, or are most elite recruits still going to thumb their noses at such small schools? I don't like the idea or the phrasing of thumb their noses, because it makes it sound as if they're rejecting HBCUs, whereas really they've bought into the notion that these more traditional schools are the only pathway into these leagues. Mm -hmm. And I think beyond the fact that Deion Sanders is at Jackson State is the fact that the vice president of the United States is an HBCU grad. Yeah. And beyond the fact that Vice President Kamala Harris is an HBCU grad is the fact that since the killing of George Floyd, a lot of Black people from a lot of different generations have been reassessing a lot of decisions. And so HBCUs are being looked at in a different way because the Black community in this country is looking at itself in a different way. And that means young people are also doing the same. Remember, it isn't just about Deion Sanders being a coach. It's about Steph Curry investing in HBCUs. It's about Chris Paul investing in HBCUs. It's about J.R. Smith 
bringing attention to HBCUs yeah. by enrolling on a campus mm -hmm. and participating. And tweeting all of his grades. <laughs> I love it. He's tweeting all of his grades. It's great. So HBCUs has taken a different sort of place in society as a whole in recent times. And with that will come the recruiting aspect of it. Now, does this mean the floodgates are suddenly going to be open? I don't think so. But what I do know that if you have a Deion Sanders and a Steph Curry and a Chris Paul and a J.R. Smith and a Chris Webber and a LeBron James and all of these personalities, Serena Williams, speaking highly of HBCUs, right? And then you have SEC schools where white coaches are dropping the N-word and they're not getting punished for it. Come on now. Yeah. You have some head coaches wearing T-shirts of networks <laughs> that have said very disparaging things about black people. Come on now. Yeah. If you really want to break it down, this isn't just a conversation about whether or not I can go to this school and make it to the next level in terms of professional sports. It's about I can go to the school and be respected as a human being. <laughs> it's about I can go to the school and I'm surrounded by support and love and people who understand where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do and are there to help me achieve my goals as opposed to a university that might be having me there to help them make money. So I think the conversation needs to be expanded to include what has happened in American society since the death of George Floyd and not just think this is about recruitment for Deion Sanders and this one particular player. Yeah, I do think that Deion Sanders has been foregrounded in a way that like, wow, look what Deion Sanders has made happen. That's incredible. He's such an unconventional character. We didn't know he was serious about this. But this kind of started with Maker Maker, the basketball mm -hmm. player that played for Howard. Didn't really work out for him. Howard, he had some injuries. But he was a top 100 recruit that chose Howard. That happened before this because Deion Sanders wasn't involved with it. It wasn't football. It wasn't like the top guy. I don't follow recruiting that much. My dad is always just like, I'll just show up on the first day of the year and just tell me who's on the team. And then I'll just watch the games from there, which I think is like a much that's a healthy... Good, that's a good, a healthy way of doing it. Much healthy way to do it. But most people do not do that. People are constantly watching recruiting all the time. And which drives me crazy. I'm like, why are you sitting there wondering what this 17-year-old is going to do for the and next four years? And tweeting at him saying, please come to <laughs> Illinois State. We'd love to have you here. It's very weird. It's very weird. And But people are really, really obsessed with it. And frankly, the athletes themselves have started get excited about it, right? They'll get on Twitter and say, I've announced my final 23 schools and they'll just draw it out for like, but it's great, right? Because this is the one time they get to be pursued. Right. I have to tell you, if I had that many people wanting to come after me to play a sport, I would totally milk it. I would drop a school every three days and make a big drum roll about it on Twitter. It'd be amazing. But what you're seeing is more and more recruits are putting HBCU schools higher on the list or they're putting them in the top five or the top 10. No one since Maker or Hunter have actually made that pick. But now you have a very high profile person who's actually done it. So while I agree that focusing on Dion and Hunter in this situation misses the larger story, I do think it feels like a breakthrough. You can't ignore it now. I think there was a sense with Maker Maker that because it didn't work out at Howard, I'm sure there were tons of white basketball coaches who were saying, yeah, I know you might want to do that, 
but didn't really work out for him. Look at mm -hmm. our facilities. Howard's not going to be on national television. You're not going to see Howard in the NCAA tournament. And I think this maybe puts undue pressure on both Sanders and Hunter, to be honest. But I do think that it feels like a breakthrough that if you were paying attention, did not come out of nowhere and was not just Deion Sanders and weird barstool guy having an NIL thing where they just gave him a bunch of money. The context for this has been building for a while. And I think there's reason for people in SEC schools to be concerned about this. The bill of goods they're selling tends to benefit them and them only. And I think mm -hmm. now this is an opportunity to, as you were saying, to change that. And people don't like change. And people particularly don't like change in the South. Occasionally, like even race is like a factor. No in, way, in that really? Sometimes. So yeah, I think- I figure with the B part of HBCU that it would be. <laughs> yeah. It's a really exciting story to watch because again, it's been building for a while. I think that the more you see athletes, ex-professional athletes, looking at HBCUs, as coaching destinations, you're going to see even more of this conversation percolating. Yeah. You may see even more recruits opting to go to HBCUs. I think about Patrick Ewing. He did everything right. He went to Georgetown, did incredibly well in the NBA, became a Hall of Famer, was an assistant coach for many, many years, and kept being passed over and passed over and passed over and passed over until eventually he got to Georgetown, right? Yeah. What if... He decided to give it a go and said, I want to go to Morehouse yeah. to be the coach at Morehouse. I think all of a sudden, <laughs> instead of having this great talent waiting for an opportunity from a mainstream, predominantly white institution, or perhaps even a professional team to finally recognize that he's done everything he's supposed to do and he's ready for this next transition in his life, seeing guys go, you know what? Oh, this team right here needs a new coach. Let me throw my name in that hat. Yeah. And if that starts to build, I think you're going to see a lot more Hunters. One of the problems with Hunter is Jackson State, they're not Division One. No matter how good they are, they're never going to get the television exposure of even... And... I wouldn't say never. Okay, they're not in the next because, two because years. Because once upon a time, we didn't used to watch high school basketball on ESPN. That's true. And I still think it's weird that we do. But th <laughs> this would be less weird. But for example, why can't Howard be Gonzaga, right? I always think Mike Davis. Remember Mike Davis, the guy who coached Indiana after Bob Knight and yep. just got ran out of there. And he turned out, people came after him were a lot worse than he was. He got them to the final four for crying right. out loud. But he went to Texas Southern. Yeah, Jared Jeffries is like his top player. Yeah, I think time. so. But he went to Texas Southern and rebuilt his career and clearly not just showed that he was a great coach. He got them to the tournament, but was like an entirely much more comfortable, happier person <laughs> than he was at Indiana. It was just a better situation across the board. Texas Southern played in the tournament. Functionally speaking, there's not a dramatic difference between Gonzaga or George Mason, who made the Final Four, for example, and mm -hmm. Howard or Texas Southern or Mississippi Valley State or so on. In college basketball, there's an opportunity to get on the national stage sooner I don't know if you saw it, but the ratings for Dion's game in the Celebration Bowl. Yeah. Whew, they were, yeah, they were very high. They, they were, were very, very high. high. So you're, you're not wrong. wasn't even playing. So. <laughs> and then, and it was, and they lost. It was kind of disappointing. I was kind of hoping Dion was going to get that. You know, this, this is becoming bigger the way that things usually come bigger, right? It's a combination of a solid foundation being kind of built up and big, splashy names and big, splashy moments. And those things are coming together in a moment that uh, I certainly feel is long overdue. And we talked about Jerry Rice and Walter Payton. I mean, for crying out loud, like Vince Coleman punted for Florida A&M. 
There's just so many great athletes. I had not realized until we looked up such a small number of HBCU players in the NFL. Like the 18, that's so different than it was even when we were growing up. Okay, LZ, let's take a quick break. And when we return, Hall of Fame quarterback Kurt Warner. Hey, well, he will join us to discuss his new movie, American Underdog, as well as why being a hero isn't easy and what it would have been like if he would have played in the NFL when Donald Trump was president. All right, Will, we're back. Warner to throw. Going deep downfield, adjusting for it is Isaac Bruce. And Isaac Bruce threads his way for a touchdown. 73 yards. That was Al Michaels describing St. Louis Rams quarterback Kurt Warner throwing a game-winning 73-yard touchdown pass to Isaac Bruce in the 2000 Super Bowl to cap one of the most amazing seasons in NFL history. Warner's incredible story from going undrafted by the NFL to bagging groceries just to make ends meet to then playing in the Arena Football League before becoming an NFL star is now the subject of the movie American Underdog, which stars Zachary Levi and opens Christmas Day. Coach. Ten more games and my dream is gone. I've been working my whole life for this, please. You need to start thinking about life after football, son. Respectfully, you are wrong, coach. I'm not gonna quit, because that's not what leaders do. I just need to know how to get on that field. Warner has always cited his devout Christian faith as the main reason for his NFL success, which means Jesus doesn't love me as much as he loves Kurt Warner, apparently. We are so glad to have him with us right now. Kurt, we both saw the movie. It's fantastic. It's incredibly inspirational. It's the perfect Christmas movie in my estimation. But my question is, it's a story that takes place 20 years ago, before Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. Do you think your story could have unfolded in the same way in today's time period, given the fact that it's hard for anyone to be obscure anymore? That's a great question. But I do think there's a lot of people that are still obscure. Uh, you, I think we like to think that, oh man, I could have just posted a, a video on Twitter and then some <laughs> NFL scout would have said, oh, that guy's really good. Let's put him in the NFL. I see that with my boys. I got a son that wants to play college football. And so he's posting videos all the time. Like, oh, once they see me, they'll give me a scholarship. But what you realize is 800 other kids are doing it. You know, <laughs> thousand kids. So I think you have to look at it all in context and say, well, you still would have been fighting all those other people for those same things. What makes you think that, oh, that would have gotten me noticed over someone else? It probably just would have looked a little bit different, but probably would have played out very similarly. I was in St. Louis when all of this happened. It was easy to get on the side of your story. It feels to me that maybe our current time is a little bit less innocent than that. The minute you would have had a great game, People would have gone on Twitter and been like, oh, well, we don't like this thing that he did. Or we don't like this <laughs> thing about him. Do you think now people are almost looking for, okay, yeah, but what about this thing? And what about this thing? Is it harder to be universal now than it might have been 20 years ago? I believe we live in a culture that still looks for heroes. We all want to find that person that, that we can aspire to be, that can inspire us, that can encourage us. But I think what we also know is that Sometimes it makes us feel better when we think there's that person and then we find the flaw in them. So I think both truths can be out there. And 
at the end of the day, going through that journey, one of the things that I tried to do is I tried to stay true to who I was and what I believed in. And I tried to make sure that no matter what happened, good or bad, that I stayed the same person and a person that people could attach to, somebody that they could see themselves in to some degree. I still believe the story would have connected with people because they saw themselves in it. And in seeing themselves in it, they, they gravitated and they connected to it. And then the key for me was to make sure I stayed true to who I was. So I didn't give them a reason to go, oh, I wanted that guy to be a hero, but ah, we found the flaws. And again, <laughs> they were going to find flaws on the football field. You know, that, that was inevitable. Yeah. It wasn't like I was going to play perfect football. I wasn't worried about that because that's, that's normal. We all have bad days at whatever we do. To me, it was more about the character. If they could continue to connect to the character and, and, and what I was all about and what my values were and what helped me to get through all that stuff to get to that point, I don't think it would have mattered whether I was covered like I was then or I'm covered like I am now. I've got people of all ages saying, your story inspired me when I was here or when I was there because they're looking for a hero. And I'm grateful that up to this point, I don't think I've done anything to shoot <laughs> that down. So they're able to still kind of hold on to that. My burden is to make sure that people can still aspire and be inspired and encouraged by my story. And I don't take that lightly. They want to chase after their dream because they saw someone else that was able to do it and stay true to who they were along the way. Kurt, you didn't just go through hardships trying to achieve your ultimate dream without what it appears in the film anyway, a reintroduction, if not a full reintroduction into your faith, into Christianity. And I was really pleasantly surprised to see the script not shy away from that element. When you think about what this means to the audience that shares your faith, how important is it to you that this film reaches those who don't share your faith as opposed to those who do? It was important to us to make a film that reached both sides. We are a family of faith. And that will always be something that is woven into every one of our stories because it's who we are. But what we've learned along the way with faith and maybe not always done it the right way is that we all come to this thing in different places. And it's a journey for all of us. If you are further along in your faith or, or more, I guess I would say where Brenda and I find ourselves now in our faith and, and grounded in that. I think you will be encouraged by that and you will see that storyline in the movie. If you're not quite in that place or you're still searching or you don't even really have a faith in that perspective, I still believe you're going to be impacted by the story. And that was important to us to try to find that balance to make sure that the movie spoke to everybody, whether you were a person of faith or not. And you didn't get to a point in the movie where you go, oh, there it is. There it is. You lost me for the rest of the movie. And you're not a person of faith that goes, why did they not talk about their faith? I know that's a part of them. And then they go and make this movie that's not true to it. It feels like the discussion of church, if not the church itself, has become more divisive over the last 20 years. One of my closest friends is a pastor who has been driven out of his specific church because of political differences that never popped up at all, frankly, before the last five or six years. I'm curious if you have seen those kind of difficulties, that kind of evolution, and how just you as a person of faith have kind of been able to navigate those things. I, I think we've all seen it. 
you know, in whatever regard you want to say, whether it's politicized, whether the humanity of all of us gets in the way at times, whether it's the prejudice of all of us gets in the way at times, even when we we think we're coming from a place of faith or what we believe to be the truth, it's gotten in the way of, of a lot of people being able to connect with their faith and connect with God on a higher level. And so what Jesus represented for us was representing love and, and being able to connect with people, no matter where they're at. It's not about a building. It's not about being able to quote scripture. It's not about politically what you believe. It's not about the sexual orientation. It's about people and it's about loving people. And that has been our approach moving and trying to navigate through all of this. My goal is to make sure that my agenda is pure and that I'm doing what I believe God has called me to do. And that's to love people, not to judge people, not to say my way is better than your way. That's all left for him. I just want to love people. All of us need to put our humanity aside and get back to just loving people. And I think we'd be amazed at where we can get if we do that. Yeah, Will, stop judging me. I'm sorry. I judge Gilsey constantly. <laughs> I don't even know what for. I just, I just don't judge it. I will say, uh, last thing on this, I am an Arizona Cardinals fan. So for me, that run gets forgotten. I'm assuming there's going to be a sequel about that playoff run. <laughs> it absolutely should be happening because yeah. I was at that Super Bowl. I remember yeah. the pass you completed with Larry Fitzgerald. When he streaked down there into the end zone, you saw him look up into the screen. You could see him thinking, we just won the Super Bowl. Yeah. I remember saying, holy cow, they just won the Super Bowl. And then... Right. I know. Like, like How great a moment could that be, right? <laughs> I truly believe that's the first time any Arizona Cardinal fan ever uttered the words, Arizona Cardinals are going to win the Super Bowl. I can you confirm know? that. I can confirm that. Or the St. Louis Cardinals before so, that. So, I can absolutely trust me, I've that. actually talked about it yeah. with people. And again, I, I know it doesn't happen, so it's probably not going to happen. But I do well, think, hey, who knows, if this one's really successful and people like it, there could be some cool things that we could do with the second part. All right. The movie is American Underdog. I look forward to the sequel about the Arizona Cardinals and the limited run series <laughs> about the New York Giants time. I assume that's a shorter oh period. Geez, yeah, that would be a very, very, very short one. Very we short, don't talk about, about the New York Giants time. That's not what we do here. That's what made him an underdog in Arizona. That's what's so great about it. <laughs> Last quick question for you, Kurt. Did he throw the football right? Or did you have to train him? Oh, I definitely worked with him, but I didn't get to work. I didn't get to work with him enough. He also had another personal trainer. You know, and, and that's really the hard part, right? Is that when you make a sports movie, the first thing people do is they go, you got to get your, the sports right enough, right? Yeah. Good enough. It doesn't have to be like he's going to look like me throwing, but it's got to be good enough that you don't lose the audience with what you do football wise. So I definitely think without a doubt, we hit that. But that's always the hardest part is that we're taking an actor that 40 years old that never played football. But then people are going to expect him to throw like a Hall of Fame quarterback <laughs> in four months. It can't happen. And so we put a lot of work into that. And I think everybody did a great job of putting that together. For whatever reason, people expect it to look as true to life as possible. And, and we all know that's, that's impossible. I worked 40 years of my life to be able to do that. If somebody could do it in four months, I wouldn't be very good at what I did. Yeah, when they make the movie of this podcast, we'll feel the same way. That doesn't look at all the way that we podcast. All right, Kurt, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Best of luck with the movie and a happy holidays to you and your family. Happy holidays to you guys too. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you, sir. Okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2021. <laughs> 
That was audio from one of Nike's famous Bo Nose commercials, which ran in 1989 and 1990 and stars superstar athlete Bo Jackson and musician Bo Diddley promoting a cross-training shoe named for Jackson. Bo, you don't know Diddley. 31 years ago this week, Jackson was selected to the AFC Pro Bowl team as a reserve running back, becoming the first and only athlete, Will, to make all-star teams in two major North American pro sports leagues. He was also an all-star outfielder with the Kansas City Royals in 1989. Will, Bo Jackson was one of the most exceptional talents we've ever seen, and who knows what he would have accomplished if a hip injury didn't end his NFL career in 1991 and his baseball career not long after. So I ask you. Is it even possible for anyone to play in two different pro sports leagues anymore, let alone become great in both of them? I think it's possible. I just don't know if it will be allowed. And I think if you're looking for an example of this, Kyler Murray is the guy, right? Obviously, he was number one draft pick and he's been great for the Arizona Cardinals, my Arizona Cardinals. But Kyler was really a big part of the Oakland A's plans. If Kyler Murray would have stayed with the Oakland A's and not gone to the NFL, I think he would be playing in the major leagues right now. He was considered that sort of talent, a bigger talent in football, clearly. I think that he made the right decision. But the fact that he had to make a decision at all feels something very specific to our time, or more to the point, makes Bo Jackson specific to his time. Because I don't think that he would really be allowed to do that now. They would make him choose. We are a specialized culture, not for our best, not for our benefit. But we are a culture that says, oh, you're good at football? Concentrate every single focus of your being on being great at football. And again, maybe it would have been different if Calamari would have been a cornerback. He has to memorize all the plays. But I feel like now we would make Bo Jackson choose a sport, and I think we'd be lesser off for it. I don't know if in today's empowered athlete environment, you can make an athlete do anything. Perhaps before this stronger movement, to raise athletes' voices, to make them appear more human. I don't know post-2020 politics that a sports entity can come to an athlete and say, you're not allowed to do this in your downtime, or we're not negotiating with you if you're splitting your time. I think in today's environment, athletes are actually more empowered to make sure that they're able to do two sports if they're that good. I think it's more about whether or not they're good enough to do two sports, because to your point, we're such a specialized culture when it comes to athletics that we're not allowing kids to explore all the different sports to see if they actually could be good in more than one sport. Obviously, in college, there is some cross-pollination between basketball and football, but we don't really see a lot of that on the pro level because I don't really think that that's really encouraged on the minor level and it's not encouraged in high school anymore. And I'm not even sure if parents are still carting their kids around to all these different sports anymore or are they more prone to sort of make sure that they're specialized as well under this misguided belief that the kid is one day going to be the next Joe Namath. I agree that empowered athletes can assert themselves to be able to do both. But if Kyler Murray would have said, sorry, I'm playing football and baseball, he's not the number one overall draft pick. Probably not. Bo Jackson was a great football player and a great baseball player. I do not think he was the greatest football player and the greatest baseball player. He was actually really good at both, which allowed him... He was an all-star at both. He was a better football player. I'll put it this way. If he played baseball now, they'd be like, wow, he strikes out all the time and he doesn't get on base. Right, yeah. He'll fit right in. He doesn't get on base. Strikes out all the time. And <laughs> not getting on base. Not getting on base would be a problem for him. But yes, you're right. But more to the point, if Bo Jackson were Barry Sanders 
in his prime. But they have let Barry Sanders go dabble with the Tigers. Why well, second lose twice? That's true. Because losing once yeah, wasn't sorry. enough. Bad sports. <laughs> they were good then. They were, they were they were briefly good during were, that time. Were we good when Barry Sanders was? We were okay. Right before, I think, right before, yeah, right yeah, before yeah. he got there. I guess that's the thing, though, is Kyler Murray. If he said, "You know what? I'm doing it. I'm playing baseball." and you can go ahead and draft me. I'm going to do both. The Cardinals are not selecting him first overall in that draft, and the A's would do everything in their power to try to talk him out of it. And maybe Kyler Murray would still say, you know what, I'm doing it, but it would be a huge, huge risk for him. And if it pays off, it pays off huge. Then he gets to be the new Bo Jackson. But if it doesn't pay off, Kyler Murray missed three games this year with injury. You don't think if you're playing baseball, everyone would be like, well, if you hadn't been playing baseball, <laughs> had been playing baseball all summer, maybe you wouldn't have gotten hurt. Right. And I think that would become so much that no athlete would even want to deal with it. That's definitely a part of the conversation I hadn't considered, how social media will also influence those decisions. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, there would be people that said, well, if you hadn't been playing baseball, yeah. you wouldn't have gotten sacked that one time. Don't you take <laughs> football seriously? Because football <laughs> must be taken seriously. And it's just like, what? Ever. Yeah. Like someone couldn't honestly be both a place kicker and like a pitcher. Yeah. It is possible. We just don't believe in nuance anymore. We certainly don't believe in variation anymore. We're a very black and white society. And that even boils down to how people approach sports, I guess, now, which is kind of disappointing because Bo Jackson was incredible. Oh. And if he was allowed, to continue on and had not gotten injured, he might have actually inspired more Bo Jacksons instead of being a cautionary tale. Yeah, he could be like what Shohei Otani is kind of being in baseball now. You're seeing more people try to pitch and hit because he's shown that it's possible. Obviously, Deion Sanders came after him. We saw people inspired by Bo Jackson. But I, I think you're right. And I think it's a shame... Too, because you've seen superstar athletes. Roger Federer has famously talked about this a bunch, right? He's so glad that he was able to play a lot of other sports coming up. Did not have to focus just on tennis as a little kid. Not only does he think it makes a better tennis player, he actually has talked about how he thinks he's a better person because of it. He's a more worldly person. He cares about things other than tennis. And I think the way that youth sports are in this country, if you can throw hard at the age of 10, you're a pitcher. And that's what you are from now on. And I think that's a shame. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our games of the week. Games of Christmas week. LZ, what do you got? Well, I thought I had Christmas games, Will, but I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I know. (laughs) Like, there were two games in particular on Christmas Day that I was looking forward to. Obviously, one was Warriors versus Suns part three, Mm -hmm. I guess. They split their first two games. These are the NBA's best two teams, and it would have been great to see who would have come out ahead. But with the COVID protocols and you don't know who's going to play and who's not going to play, it could end up being a dud or it could end up being the game of the year. Who knows? And then the other game, also on Christmas Day, was Kevin Durant versus LeBron James. (laughs) You're seeing more and more people being willing to say that KD has supplanted LBJ as the game's best player. And this was an opportunity on Christmas Day for us to kind of look and see if that was true. But (laughs) I don't know if Durant's going to play, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and if he does play, then I don't know who else is on his team is going to play. And I don't know who else in the Lakers are going to play. And this might end up being a dud as well. So 
that's the games of the week. I just can't promise they're going to be spectacular games of the week. Yeah, we may have to talk to our families. I mean, honestly, if I, like if, oh, if God, these games I... keep being bad, right? Ugh. But yeah, I mean, like, Trey Young is not playing in the Knicks Hawks game. What is the point of the Knicks playing the Hawks on Christmas Day if Trey Young isn't going <laughs> right. to be there? There's no right. reason for that game to even happen. My game of the week is on Thursday, December 23rd. It is the Frisco Football Classic between North Texas and Miami of Ohio, 3.30 p.m. on ESPN. Now, you might be wondering, why does Will care about North Texas and Miami, Ohio? He doesn't. I don't know a single player on any of those teams. However, this is my favorite sort of thing that I think the pandemic has opened us up for. This game has existed for roughly a week and a half. <laughs> this Wait, is not what? a real This is a, not a real ball. This is a one-time only thing. Basically, what happened is there were two extra teams that qualified for a bowl game than there were for their actual to be bowls. So ESPN was like, well, shit, why don't we, you guys just play. And so they just have made this game for 3.30 in the afternoon on Thursday the 23rd. In the middle of a pandemic, I feel obliged to point out. We are so soft as a nation, by the way. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, we don't want anyone to have disappointment. Here's a participation medal we just found for you. Hey, Here you go. And more importantly, ESPN found it for free programming. <laughs> to me, A, it tells me a little bit about the economics of sports and sports television. The fact that ESPN said, okay, in a week and a half, let's just get everybody out there. We'll get a crew out there. We'll make it happen. And whatever money they get for advertisements for that game is obviously much more than that game costs. You see college football games that are planned out 15 years in the future, right? Like, we got to be prepared for Oklahoma, UCLA in 2036 or something. During the pandemic, we saw this just last weekend with some of the COVID cancellations, right? Duke was like, hey, anybody want to play us? And so, and they just played. And I love that. I feel sports should have more of that. Everything is so scheduled out. The idea that it's just like... So you want leagues to be like, we got next? Yeah, just like whatever. Like, like, there's no game Tuesday? Shoot, get a camera. Bring it out here. Everything's streaming anyway it's all television inventory just make games happen i love games lz so i like it when games just emerge out of the ether and finally will we know that there are always teams executives players or officials messing up the sports so let's dive into this week's screw-ups will what is your blunder of the week my blunder of the week is from the big east they set this rule before the season that if a team was unable to make a game have enough players to play because of covid that it was a forfeit it wasn't a cancellation. It wasn't a postponement. It was a forfeit, which basically was them saying, hey, if you don't have enough players to play, if you have people up with COVID, it's your fault. And so therefore you have to forfeit the game. Now, I understand that was probably an urge to get them to be vaccinated. But again, in the age of Omicron, it seems awfully silly to make someone, I think Georgetown just had to forfeit a game against Providence. It's a loss. It's an actual loss in their record because they didn't have enough players to play for the game. That seems very, very silly. And I think it's a blunder for the Big East not to have changed that rule by now. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. My blunder of the week isn't a player or an executive. It's an entire league. How in the hell did you guys make Isaiah Thomas wait this long? <laughs> How? Oh. He shows up in a G League game, drops 42. He's played two games with the Lakers, one of which he led them in scoring. Now, granted, it was a blowout, but he still led them in scoring. And then he comes back and has another solid scoring game in the second game he played for the Lakers. And he's only on the Lakers team because Omicron forced so many players to be sitting out. Seriously, NBA? Seriously. I get it. Isaiah Thomas may have rubbed some people the wrong way when he was healthy and bragging about the Bricks truck being backed up. Got it. But he clearly was healthy enough, 
ready enough, and we know talented enough to contribute to an NBA team. And yet you had this brother sitting on the sidelines tweeting about how he wanted to be back in the game. <laughs> and now that you get a chance to look at him, you're like going, oh, yeah, he's pretty good. Well, guess what? He's always been pretty good. Shame on you, NBA, for making that brother wait on the outside looking in. I'm glad he's back. I hope he sticks. If he doesn't stay with the Lakers, he should definitely stay with someone because he's a super talented guy and he should not be continued to be punished for what Danny Ainge did to him way back when. Couldn't agree more. And so much fun to watch. Love having him back. So much fun. And that's our show for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on the ACAST app wherever you get your podcasts. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienemy. Nope. <laughs> it's not Pierre Bienemy. It's Bienemy. <laughs> so close. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienemy, Megan Burney, Rossiel Guerrero. <laughs> See, this is the problem. The problem is I don't like, have my phonetic spelling. I wasn't prepared no, to do the, it again. The problem that you know you're doing fine. The problem is now that our producer overlords have got in our mind that if we mess up at all on this, it will be in the show, and so therefore it's an extra level of pressure for each of us. So good luck, good luck today. You, you're the guinea pig. The long game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Bernie, Rossiel Guevara. And Rachel. <laughs> I was going to say it, Rachel. They're just trying I just to mess made with made up a name. <laughs> this show is also produced by Bob. Some guy named Bob. <laughs> Some guy named Bob. I'm sure is involved somewhere. <laughs> and Marshall Eisen. Our engineer is Aaliyah Jackson. Music is by David Wilson. We'll be back next week for another breakdown of the biggest stories in sports. And it'll be Will's turn to suffer. <laughs> and I'm going to nail it. I'm going to nail it. I'm going to do a bow. <laughs> Congratulations for correctly pronouncing the names of the people that make this show and make us not sound like idiots every week. Way to correctly go, me. pronouncing the names of people who we've actually been talking to Too for constantly. months now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. We play it like a joke, but we're actually just pricks. Right. <laughs>